Well, you may or you may not know our pastor is in sunny California right now, and he'll be there uh, this week and into next week, so I have the privilege today and next Sunday to uh, bring the word uh, to us. We are so thankful for Pastor James, and we're thankful for the fact of how seriously he takes ministry of the word, that he would even take these uh, serious studies to work on a a doctorate in the very area of preaching. We will benefit from that and from him, so we're thankful for that. Can you say amen to that? So what I want to do this morning is I want to get us to a chapter in the Bible that relates to a a particular day and a particular event that was uh, significant in the life of a, a sovereignly chosen people by, by God himself. And I want to get to that particular day because it has great application and relevance for people who have Bibles and they come to a Bible church to hear the Bible. So hopefully we'll, we'll get there but uh, I, I want us to do a bit of a survey to see God working in all of this, moving to that day and other things from which we can benefit from how he takes one particular man and history and from that brings us to a nation, people, unlike any other people uh, in the world. And that's the nation of Israel who gave us our Savior. So I want you, if we start with that key man that relates to the history of the chosen people of God, uh, we would probably then start, I would think, with Abraham, and I hope you would think that too, and that would cause us then to turn to Genesis chapter 15, if you would, with me please. Now, we could turn to chapter 12 because that's the initial call of Abraham. And we're going to survey, we're going to move along and see the wonder of God working from a tremendous promise that God makes to our man Abraham, does he not? And he calls him to himself in chapter 12. And he says, Abraham, you're going to be my man. I'm going to bless the world through you. Great blessing. Secondly, I'm going to give you a descendants. And third, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land of promise, which we call the promised land, right? And when we get to chapter 15, he is reaffirming, God is reaffirming the promise that he has made to Abraham because time has passed from the promise and Abraham doesn't have a descendant, so he's wondering what's going on. The word comes to him in verse 2, Genesis 15, 2. Now, if you're there and you're going to follow, say amen, would you? Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give to me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house must be my heir. And God says, No, uh uh-uh, that's not the plan. Abraham, I'm going to keep my word here. I want you to Glance up at the stars and try to count the stars, right? And see if you can, so your descendants will be as that. And then likewise, he says down in verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the ear of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So we continue to have this great promise of this great blessing, 
promise of a descendants, promise of a nation from him, and a land that he's going to possess that he doesn't know where that is or when that is as of yet. And I wanted you to turn to chapter 15 because I wanted us also to see verse 13. God said to Abram, who will later be Abraham, that's his name at this time, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, for four centuries. And when you read the book of Genesis, and if you never have, it's time to start today or tomorrow, you'll see that the book of Genesis is really a story of Abraham's family, is it not? And the promise being fulfilled by the son of promise that God gives to Abraham and Sarah and their much later years of life and non-childbearing, and we have the son of promise being born, Isaac. And Isaac will take a wife later on, and, and his, he and his wife will have uh, children, but they will have a particular uh, child of the, of the blessing, one that stole the blessing of the firstborn, and that's going to be Jacob. And Jacob and his wife are going to have a number of children. In fact, they're going to have sons that uh, become heads of various tribes, some 12 different sons that become heads of tribes, of clans, or part of this particular promise and of this nation. And part of your assignment on the way home today is to name the 12 heads of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. And then Jacob, likewise, when his sons, well, there's one particular son that we come next to in all the promise of a descendant, and that's one that much of the book of, toward the end of the book of Genesis is about, and that's the story of a son by the name of Joseph. And though his brothers sought to kill him, God has a plan for Joseph and preserves his life. And if you turn over toward the end of the book of Genesis, if you would, Genesis chapter 50, in the providence of God, Joseph ends up being the right hand in power and authority to the very Pharaoh of the nation of Egypt. And God is working in all of this concerning the promise that he made to Abraham. And we come to that verse that we are so familiar with, and so many of you have marked in your, in your Bibles, chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph is responding to his brothers who sought to kill him, and he's not going to return evil for evil, and he says, why? Verse 20, you know the verse. As for you, you meant evil against me. Everybody say the rest of it. But God meant it for... And oftentimes we stop there and we can tend to forget the very purpose of what's going on here. I know this is a great verse. We know that this is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. God causing all things to work together for good to those that love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But notice the rest of the verse. This is about what God is doing. So Joseph says, yes, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve 
many people alive. To get his family there, Jacob and his sons and their family alive to Egypt. Now turn over to, not very far, just the next book in your Bible in Exodus. No, I'm not going to cover every book of the Bible, okay? We get to Exodus chapter 1, and we see God working in that, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob, who were 70 in number, But Joseph was already in Egypt, and Joseph died, and all his brothers and all his generation. Verse 7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Remember, God said, you're going to be somewhere 400 years, four centuries And your descendants are going to become like the stars of the skies. And God's not done with that yet. But now we have this great nation of Israel in bondage in Egypt for God's holy purposes of preserving them. And then in the midst of all that's going on, we have at the beginning of the book of Exodus this story about another man that God is going to raise with the purpose of continuing this story concerning this particular nation. And he is miraculously preserved by his parents, putting him in a basket and in the Nile River and and pulled out and becomes raised in the very house of Pharaoh himself for 40 years. And then we have another 40 years that when he realizes who he is and the trouble that he experiences, he's off into the wilderness for a second 40 years. And then at 80, by the way, I'm encouraged at this, things really happen in his life at 80. All the people, you know, close to my age, say amen right now. He has this task that God has given to him. God reveals himself to this man named Moses. And he says, you go back. And Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to say this. Thus says the Lord God, your God, the God of Israel, let my, and it's not about Moses' people, let my God's people go. And oh my, what a deliverance it was. Amen. And you read at the beginning of the book of Exodus this great competition that takes place between Moses and and the God of Israel, the creator God, sovereign God, through these ten plagues to demonstrate that he alone is the living God and takes precedence in the plagues over every one of the false perceived gods of Egypt. From the river that supposedly to the Egyptians is the giver of life, not the river, it's God, to the Pharaoh himself who's perceived as as deity. And through all those great events that take place with those plagues over Egypt, it comes to the place where they're going to be delivered out of Egypt. In fact, I want you to take your Bible and turn over with me to chapter 12, if you would, of the book of Exodus, over into chapter 12. And in chapter 12... Verse 40, now as Moses begins to then miraculously lead the people being delivered, and by the way, that last 
plague that takes place concerns and relates to a blood of a lamb that was offered that brings the deliverance of the firstborn of the children of Israel and that lamb that is to be eaten as a memorial and in the days to come as a feast for the nation of Israel as a very Passover feast and all of it. And we see this thing that's going on in the midst of all of this with this people is we're getting ultimately to another lamb, are we not? And another shedding of blood, are we not? And we're talking now about the Lamb of God, as John says, who takes away the sins of the world. And that blood pointing ahead down the time of tunnel of history to the coming and the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now they've gone out. And we're told in chapter 12, verse 40. <clears throat> now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Verse 41, and it came about at the end of, the, of those 430 years to the very day that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And we read again, verse 51, same chapter, came about on that same day that the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And as they moved out, heading toward a place that God would be guiding them by day with a cloud and by night with a fire and providing and protecting them, and them all being a very cooperative and content people along the way, amen? Just to see if you're awake. Okay, they were not. They were like us. And as they move along, they get to a, to, to a location there at, at Sinai because this, this generation of people, they don't know God. They need, they need to know who this God is. And there at Sinai, then God gives to Moses, he gives them the law because they are going to be marked as a unique people in their life and in their worship and, and in and all of their manner of activity because they are his people who are called to be a light unto the nations of the world. And they're going to learn with reference to all that he's going to convey to them. We read about that like in the book of Leviticus, how in the midst of their worship of this God and, and sacrifices and later going to be a temple and so forth, that this God is holy and must be treated as holy in all their manner of life. And so having been given the, the law, they press on from Sinai, moving toward this land that has been promised to Abraham and his descendants. And now I want you to turn with me to the book of Numbers, if you would. And I want you to come over to the book of Numbers and in chapter 15, chapter 14, if you would. And now, months later, as they continue to wander toward that land of promise, <clears throat> they stop at Kadesh Barnea. And it appears that through the requests of the people, they want to know before they go into that land if it truly is the land of milk and honey and cheese curds. So what do they request of Moses? They say, we want to have some men who will go in and check out and survey the land to see if it really is what God has promised us. And they send out a messenger for each one of the tribes. 
each one of those sons with reference to Jacob. And they go in and they're for 40 days, they're wandering through the land and surveying the land and seeing it truly is what God says. In fact, remember, they even come back and they've got a, a cluster, they've got a, a large a cluster of, of, of grapes that's hanging on a, on a pole being carried along by two of the 12 stri- tribes to show them how fruitful this, this land is. But at the same time, they have some other news, remember? And the other news is, well, there's fortified cities in the land, and there's some pretty mighty people in the land. In fact, there's even some sons of Anak in the land who are kind of like uh, Goliath kind of people. And so the people have a congregational vote. Congregational vote is always right, right? No. And what do they say? And God over and over and over again has guided and provided and protected them. And what do they say? We can't do it. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? Can't go in. Can't do it. So what happens as a result of that? I know Joshua and Caleb said, let's do it. But the others said no, and the people said no, we can't. And if you look with me at chapter 14, uh, verse 20, so the Lord said, I pardon them according to your word, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. They shall not by any means see the land which I swore to their father, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. Down to verse 28. I say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Over to verse 33. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which, days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you shall know my opposition. So now they wander. And all those who are above the age of 20... In that 40 years, they're going to die in the wilderness. And in preparing for a a new generation of people who are going to go in and possess the land as they ought to do. Now I want you to turn over with me to the book of Joshua, the beginning of the book of Joshua chapter 1. And at the close of those 40 years, toward the close of that period, Moses is going to soon die. And God has raised up another man, hasn't he? Someone who has been trained by Moses, who is a servant warrior, and his name is Joshua. And God says, all right, you're going to be the one, Joshua, that I've determined is going to lead the people and go in and possess, take the land, Drive out the people of the land, all of the idolatry and all of the, uh, of the 
pagan worship is that the land is to be cleansed of that, drive them out. And you see in Joshua chapter 1, if you're following yet in your Bible with me, will you say amen? All right, good. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I have given to them, so to the sons of Israel. Down in verse 7 and 8 and 9, you love these verses, don't you? You've got these verses marked in your Bible. Only be strong and courageous, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from, to, from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Follow my word, follow the law, Joshua. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, Joshua. Verse 10, then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan and go in and possess the land. Oh, and Joshua is such a great book, is it not? And Joshua reminds us when the people obeyed God and trusted God, they experienced great victory and blessing, like at Jericho. And I want you to turn now with me to the book of Judges, if you would, please. Judges, chapter 2. So they go in, and they begin with the leadership, under the leadership of Joshua to possess the land that was promised. After these 400 years and 40 years in the wilderness. And in the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 7, if you would. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Israel. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him. The territory of his inheritance, down to verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. In other words, that generation passed away. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And serve the Baals, this pagan evil worship. And what we learn in the book of Judges is that when they really began to carry out the work of taking over the land, they discovered the old saying is true, why fight them when you can, when you can join them? Oh yeah, and they joined them. And they intermarried and they with the peoples of the land, and they serve the Baals. And what we have in the book of Judges is another 300 years of chaos with this people. And as they experience uh, the oppression and the slavery that takes place as a people who are not 
worshiping God and following his, his word, they cry out to God and periodically from time to time he raises up a judge, he raises up a Gideon, or he raises up a Samson, or he raises up even a, a judge by the name of Deborah. My wife had made me sure that I would get that one in there. And he delivers them. And they're delivered. And they wander away. And they experience 300 years we've got this cycle that goes on. And after those 300 years, there's really another judge. It's the end of this period of the judges, but another one that God raises up. And it's found over there as we get out of Judges and into the book of 1 Samuel. Turn there to 1 Samuel, if you, if you would, please, to chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. But remember always that last verse in the book of, of Judges that reminds us of the problem of that period. You know the verse, don't you? You know the verse. It says, during those days, every man did what was right where? There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction, says the Proverbs. And so that's what we've got then, and that's very much what we have much of on our day, every man determining his own way and his own religion and his own course of life and needing to hear how to gain forgiveness and be made right with the living God. So this Samuel, through the prayer of uh, Hannah, God grants her a, a son. And that man, Samuel, grows up. He's given over after he is weaned. He's given over to Eli, who is a compromising priest and who also serves with ungodly sons, but God takes care of Samuel in that situation. And he can take care of you no matter what situation in life, ungodly situation you might find yourself in. You remain faithful to him, he'll take care of you. Can you say amen to that? And he took care of Samuel and he's going to use Samuel. Well, look over in chapter 3 verse 19. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. Oh, that's a great words. And let none of his words fail. And all Israel from Daniel even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord appeared to him again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel. And at Shiloh by the word of God. Turn over to chapter 7 then if you would. Chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7 and verse 15. So it describes what Samuel's ministry as this a faithful judge during this period was. He, he had a circuit that he would travel about. Look at verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all of these places. And then he would return for, to his house and judged Israel from a certain location where, where he lived. And as Samuel began to get older, likewise, and we're told in chapter 8 that as the heads of tribes realized Samuel's getting old, and as they realized that Samuel, sadly enough, Samuel had rotten sons who also judged but for personal gain, evil sons, so the leaders of the tribes came to Samuel and said, we got a problem. We don't want your sons to judge over us. But we also have a solution, remember? We have, we have a solution. 
What our solution is, is if we could just have a king like all the other nations. We'd have a king to watch over us, a king to provide for us, a king to protect us. They already had a king. It was Jehovah. It was their God. Samuel knew what was going on, and God said to Samuel, they've not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me, rejected the Lord. What a sad day it was. But sometimes, to teach us what God has for us to learn, sometimes he answers prayers and things in our lives that are going to cause us to realize we need him more than we need anything else. And so we have, we're ushered in now in chapter 8 to this period of the kings. And we've got the first king of Israel, and his name is Saul. And boy, he looks like a great king, man. He's, he's a weightlifter. <laughs> he's a big, tall guy. He's going to make a great, he looks like he's got all the characteristics of a great king. And Saul starts fairly well, but he doesn't stay there. And he doesn't listen to the counsel of Samuel. And one of the particular things that, uh, that Saul did was he was to wait for Samuel concerning counsel. In another scenario, he was to take care of the uh, Amalekites and, and, and Agag and, and remove them, take care of them, destroy them over all of their idolatry and evil practices. And, and Saul had a better idea. Let, let's take care of everything else, but let's bring that king back as a gift uh, to Samuel and, and sheep for offering because we could use those for good sacrifices. And Samuel points out to Saul and to us, turn to chapter 15, that partial obedience, I want to hear from the young people, partial obedience is, I guess the parents have to say it, Partial obedience is disobedience because God is never graded on the curve. Amen? And so what he reveals to us as his will for our lives from his word is to be done. And he'll give us grace to do it and we'll do it as we were reminded this morning. We'll do it because we love him, because he's first loved us and we want to live to his glory. But we learn, we don't want to ever forget those verses in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul... Has the Lord his delight in burnt offerings, a sacrifice, and is obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed the fat of rams. For the rebellion is as sin and divination, subordination is as, is as inquiry and iniquity, excuse me, and idolatry. And because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has, no, he has rejected you, Saul, and your kingdom is going to end. And it's going to end bad. Disobedience to the will of God is nothing less than wicked rebellion against him. And in the midst of all of this, before Saul comes to an end, Samuel is guided to go and anoint another king. Chapter 16, we're already there, the next chapter and he goes, he's to find this man, Jesse. And Jesse has some really good-looking sons who appear to be really potential great kings. And so he has his sons come in, and, and, and Samuel checks them all out and then asks, is there one more that you've not brought in? And he says, yes, but he's just this little guy out, take, out there taking care of the sheep. He loves to sing, by the way. 
And he loves to write things like, the Lord is my what? My shepherd. It's David. And we have that wonderful verse, don't we, in verse 7, where God is always working and concerned about. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees, for God, for man looks at the outward appearance, everybody finish it with me, but the Lord looks at the the heart, the heart, the real you, and the real me. And we move from David, and then we've we've got Solomon, and, and, and Solomon's going to be able to do what David wanted to do, and that is build the temple. David will expand the kingdom to no end. David was like the rest of the kings, like all flesh. Yes, he was a sinner, but he had such a heart for God wanted to build a temple to him, and God says, no, but your son Solomon is going to build the temple when he is going to be king, but he makes a promise to David. And he makes a promise where he says, but David, when when your son Solomon takes the throne, he's going to be just the first of an eternal throne that's going to have an eternal reign and an everlasting king. Well, how do you get that? Well, stay with Marshall in the 9 o'clock hour on Sundays because you're going to find your way to a king who's going to come to this earth again and on his side is written, Lord of lords and what? King of all kings who return and reign And reign in that literal first thousand years as the first phase of an eternal king who will reign forever and ever and is forever worthy of worship because of why he comes the first time as well. And Solomon's going to have a son named Rehoboam and Rehoboam gets on the throne and he says, you know, dad worked you hard, but wait, you see what I got for you. You have no idea. I got projects and I'm going to tax you. And the people come together and say, you know, we don't necessarily like that idea. So they come to another man who actually was a a recognized leader in Solomon's army. His name is Jeroboam. And they come to Jeroboam, many of the heads of the tribes, and they say, we don't want Rehoboam as our king. How about you be our king? Let's separate. And the kingdom suddenly is divided. And Rehoboam then has the southern kingdom of just Judah there at Jerusalem. And this other man by the name of Jeroboam makes himself, and they make him king of the northern area, Samaria and above. And they say, hey, we can do this thing. We can worship God our own way. We can have our own temple, and we can have our own sacrifices, and we can have our own priests. In fact, you know that he even had a golden calf, an image made at two different spots to make it convenient for the people in the northern kingdom to do their own thing. And then we have a divided kingdom. And we've got the kingdom in the north, Israel, kingdom in the south, Judah, and among other things, they're at odds and fighting with one another over a period of years. Some different kings then descend from both from the north and from the south. Some 20 different kings over a period of 200 years. Some are good, most are not. And you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. You keep hearing this repeated phrase of different kings. Uh, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh my, you would think God would be done with that. 
Now turn with me to 2 Kings, if you would. We're getting near the end and near where I want to get us. And you're hanging in there. Can you say amen? Oh, what a powerful amen was right there. 2 Kings, chapter 17. Chapter 17. And in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned nine years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. And Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against him. He doesn't want to pay tribute, and he's aligning this, this, this king of the northern kingdom. He's aligning, trying to, with other nations, to get out of having to pay tribute to this Assyrian king. And Shalmaneser, in effect, says, I've had enough of that. And look at verse 5. So then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. And in the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria, the, uh, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in all these different cities and locations over the Assyrian empire. They're out of the land. They're gone. Now sometimes we, this is referred to, wrongly referred to as the, as the lost ten tribes of Israel. Beloved, they weren't lost. They were just relocated. They knew where they were, and God knew where they were. And God's not done with them. But he has kept his promise. What was his promise when he gave them the law? He said, if you bless me, I will bless you. Oh, like no other nation in the world. But if you disobey me, I will what? I will curse you. And here they're experiencing just that very thing. And now the southern kingdom, God sends prophets to them like an Isaiah and like a Jeremiah who are calling the southern kingdom and the kings of the southern kingdom to faithful, to faithfulness to God. They've now got a great, great example in what happened to the northern kingdom. And the same thing is going to happen in the southern kingdom by virtue of their, of their prophecies. And, and, and now I want you to if you would, just take your Bible and turn with me over to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. The end of 2 Chronicles. The northern kingdom is gone, taken, scattered throughout the Assyrian kingdom. A few people are left in the land, seniors and probably some of the crippled people, but most are gone. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom's invasion was 722. Now in 586 B.C., we have verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And verse 12, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord his God. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and of the people who were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the God 
of their father sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, their words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. And here comes Nebuchadnezzar to Judea, to Jerusalem, sets siege there that is a terrible couple years, starvation and all the, even cannibalism that takes place among the people who are just suffering. And they break through the walls and we're told in these next verses, well, verse 17, he brought up against them the king of Chaldeans who slew their men with the swords in the house of their sanctuary. He had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave all in his hand, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, treasury of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and all the officers. He brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned down the house of God, that is the temple, broke down the wall, burned all the fortified buildings. That's it. Those who had escaped from the sword, verse 20, he carried away to Babylon. And Jeremiah predicted they're going to be in Babylon. They're going to be in captivity. He told him even the time. Well, look at the end of verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. It kept, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now we've got another 70 years. And now we've got the southern kingdoms out of the land. We've got people out of the land. Now is that the end of Israel? Well, God made a promise, didn't he? They're gone. They're out of there. They're in captivity. And while they're in captivity, yep, Jeremiah predicted this. God was going to do a work in the heart of a king. Look at verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. By the way, is a king to his mention by name nearly 150 years earlier in the book of Isaiah that God is going to use a man named Cyrus as his servant to allow the people to come back to the land. 150 years before he is born, God is naming him and telling what, how he's going to use him. Wow, God keeps his word, does he not? And here's this king Cyrus. It's Cyrus, Darius, or Darius, and it's Artaxerxes, these three great Persian kings. And he makes this decree that they're going to come back into the land. He makes the decree because God says, I want you to do that. God works in the heart of two men. 538 B.C., Jerubbabel and jo Joshua are two key leaders back there in Babylon. And they stir up the city to know that the 70 years are over. So they gather a bunch of people, just under 50,000 people, to make the 900 mile from the area of Babylon to travel all the way back to the promised land. And they have visions of sugar plums. Because after all, it's the promised land. And they think they get back there and they get that temple built and that was their goal to do so. Then God's going to honor it and God's going to take care of them and he's going to be glorified again. And they get back there and there is no welcome committee. Where are you going to live? What are you going to do? There's already people there. How are you going to feed your family? And it is bad. It is hard. 
And with the zeal that they have, they begin to lay the foundation of the temple. But after they get the foundation done, it just sits there for 15 years. God sends prophets again, Haggai and Zechariah, and says, you better get it on. And after an 80-year period, finally they get it done. After an 80-year period, then God works in the heart of a man by the name of Ezra. By the way, turn your Bible over one more page, two more pages from 2 Chronicles. And now we get into the book of... Ezra. And what the people need is they need to know God. They don't know God, this new generation again. And Ezra is a priest and a scribe. Well, we learn about him in chapter 7. Will you turn there? Now, I'm almost where I want to be. And you've hung in there, and I'm grateful for you. Turn over to Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. Down in verse 9, for on the first of the week, first month he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach it, his statutes and ordinances to his people. And his focus would have been the Levites. But Ezra gets back there and it's a mess likewise. Intermarriage, priesthood is corrupted. People there, among the people, you know, they've got the temple done, but the walls aren't completed and there's people more living outside of Jerusalem than located there. And, and that, takes us, that, that takes us over into chapter, over into the book of Nehemiah, chapter 7. Really chapter, chapter 6, verse 15. Because there's another God, always his, his man. And back there in the Persian Empire with this king named Artaxerxes, God like a Daniel or like others or like a Moses. God has a man right there serving the king as a cupbearer to the king. And his name is, well, we're in that book. Everybody say it. His name is Nehemiah. What incredible position he has with the king of the world power at this time. And Nehemiah gets word back and he hears how bad it is and he knows part of their problem is that the city is not walled for the people to be protected. So, a number 13 years after Ezra's there, Nehemiah makes his way back likewise. And in this record time, I had us in chapter 6, verse 15, 615 of Nehemiah. So the wall was completed, and on the 25th of the month, in 52 days, and we have the record of this in the book of Nehemiah, of the miracle of building the walls for the people. So the temple's rebuilt. People are there. Walls. But where I want to get, him, get us today, <laughs> and I'm as bad as Marshall. My time's already up. <laughs> but it's totally of the Lord when that happens. Amen, Marshall? Amen. I want to get us to chapter 8. That's where we're going to stop right now, here in chapter 8. Because on a certain day, 
on a certain day, a key day in the history of Israel, at this time with the restored people, how were they back there? How are they back there again? Do you know how they're back there? Because God has given them this land, and he had promised they're going to return to this land. And how are they back there today, beloved? And how are they going to be there one day, again, when Christ returns and they're brought back as a people? And do you know our Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes back, he's going to come right back where they're at right here in chapter 8, and he's going to take possession of this land. Again, what a Savior. And he's working through this people, and on this particular day, which is a holy day because it is mentioned, first day of the, of the seventh month, it's a holy day in the sense that it began the period or the time of the Feast of Trumpets. And it was to be celebrated every seven years on the Feast of the Trumpets that the scriptures were going to be read to the people. And these people haven't heard, known the scriptures. Some had Ezra with some of the Levites, but as a whole they had not. And we've got the event in verses 1 through 3 summarized. I just want to read that, but I want you to see what's going on here. Then that Feast of Trumpets kicks off a particular month where we have other feasts that are sacred to the people and unto the Lord. And it hadn't been going on. And now they're back, and it says in chapter 8, verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. And then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Now look at verse 3. And he read from it before the square which was in the front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, I think that's a reference to anyone else old enough, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. From early morning until noon, there's going to be breaks in it, we're going to see that. But they're going to hear from the word. And the people do not have what you have on your lap. They do not have what? They don't have a Bible. They don't have a Bible. And what Ezra brings is a sacred scroll that has a section of the law. Most think from the book of Deuteronomy because it summarizes the law for the people. And he's going to, he's going to read the word to the people. What did God say to Joshua and to the people? You shall meditate on this law day and night, and then you will have what? You will then have success. What do these people need? They need to hear from God, to know God, and to know his will for their lives. They need to hear from God. And we're going to learn next week, and we're going to see the power of the word, what it did in the lives of these people. And we thank God for the miracle of the preservation of the nation of Israel. Why? Because it's these people that gave us our Savior. And the word became flesh. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. 
we thank God and we see the miracle of the nation of Israel then and even today. But that miracle speaks of the faithfulness of God always to keep his word. And when the Bible says that you would uh, repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, do you know what you can be sure of? If you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ and you believe upon him, you will be saved. Somebody say amen. Because God is faithful to his word. Now, we came today. We came as his people. We're not Israel. We're the church. But we came as his people and there's great blessing to be together. To encourage one another, to sing the great songs we heard this morning, to hear the teaching of the word. But what do we need? What do we need more than we need anything else? We bring our Bibles and we come to a Bible church. What do we need to hear? We need to hear the word of God. Because all scripture is inspired of God and profitable always for us. Amen? We need to hear the word. We need to hear it read. We need to hear it taught. We need to hear it explained as it's going to take place with these people. And it will always bring about change in our lives. But the most important thing about the word that we need to hear is the good news about all that this is pointing to with these people to bring this son of God into this world. Hundreds of years before we get even to the life of Christ, men like Isaiah were saying to a king, I'm going to give you a sign, and the sign is going to be this. Things like this. The sign's going to be this. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Why did he come? This whole plan points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he come to this earth? He came to die, to redeem a people, a great deliverance out of Egypt, oh hallelujah, but nothing compared to the deliverance found in the Lord Jesus Christ. A deliverance from ourselves, a deliverance from our sin, and a deliverance from a separation from God for all eternity. Is the gospel your hope today? Oh, I pray that it is. And next week, I wanna come back to this chapter, I promise not to wander all over the New Testament. I want to come back to this chapter and remind us of the power and dynamic of the word doing in our lives, which nothing else can do like the word. Amen? You believe that this morning. I know you do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a dear people who would be patient with me for us to go through so much of the history of you working from a promise to Abraham to the seed of Abraham, ultimately the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And the way that your word tells us that we can be sons of Abraham by faith and faith alone in the finished work of Christ. He so, you so loved this fallen world that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It all comes to Jesus Christ. And we thank you for sending him. We thank you for his resurrection. 
We thank you for his high priestly ministry on behalf of us right now. And oh, we thank you that he will come again. In his name we pray. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.